I just can't believe that the kind of public health lot whose failures and, and misplaced priorities have been exposed so clearly by this pandemic are trying and successfully making the discourse about its obesity that's the real problem here. And to kind of add my rant to uh, to the previous two, because I feel like, <laughs> feel like I need to get stuff off my chest. These podcasts are actually anger management uh, <laughs> sessions for all of us. We, we, we're not really trying to speak to anyone. It's just an opportunity to, yeah. to yell about our frustrations. Welcome to The Pin Factory, the Addison Institute's podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh and I'm the Head of Research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-hosts and our Head of Programs, Daniel Pryor and Christmas Snowden from the Institute of Economic Affairs. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about number 10 shenanigans and plans to ban so-called junk food advertising online. But first, COVID, COVID, COVID. So we've seen the results of a second COVID-19 vaccine trial that has recently been released and the Moderna vaccine, Embrace Modernity is the pun that springs to mind, uh, is 94.5% effective, while we found out last week the Pfizer and BioNTech vaccine is more than 90% effective. Uh, And these results have have both been reached uh, faster and the vaccines are working much better than I think a lot of people first expected. Is this news that we should uh, unequivocally welcome? Um, and are the kind of effectivist numbers uh, all they crack up to be? Look, I think we have to start off by saying that this is a pretty extraordinary achievement for humankind. Even some of the most optimistic expectations were saying, oh, perhaps we can get a vaccine in a couple of years, perhaps it'll be 50% effective. Uh, both the speed in which has happened, not as faster some of the, the wildest expectations, but certainly faster than even some many, many people expected, as well as the well over 90% effectiveness of these two vaccines is an extremely good sign. Um, ultimately, and it's obviously going to take some time, we can get into the logistical challenges this is going to ri- raise, as well as the kind of political implications. But I think over time, this has the potential to save many millions of lives to mean that we don't need to keep in locking down, we can get on with our economic recovery, we can see our friends and family again, we can freely travel the world. And there's even some good technological advances here out of the mRNA technology in terms of being able to develop vaccines faster in future, uh, because this is quite an adaptive technology and, and a quite customizable one, um, as well as even other treatments for things like cancer, uh, using this technology that's already been done and, and we can hopefully do on a much larger scale in future. So I think we should, to begin with, really celebrate this achievement. And Chris, are you bullish about the prospects for these vaccines? Will it all be over by next Christmas? Well, bloody hope so, yeah. Um, <laughs> a long time before then, I would hope. Um, yeah, no, I did hear somebody say that we're looking at you know a decent winter in 2021. That doesn't fill me with much um, much excitement. I mean, uh, the economy will be completely finished by then at this rate. So, yeah, obviously it's, it's a light at the end of the tunnel. It is more or less, I guess it's a little bit earlier than I expected, but, I mean, I was always led to believe that February, March would be a realistic time frame for actually getting the vaccine out and using it on people. And that still seems to be roughly what we're looking at, possibly a month earlier than that. But I can't see much happening this side of Christmas. Um, And then it's a matter of how long it takes the government to get it out there. I've heard figures of doing a million people a week. That's still going to take a very long time. And what are we going to do while it's happening? Uh, Presumably we'll inoculate the, the elderly, care homes, care home workers, NHS staff first. Uh, and then kind of go down the age, age range. But although it's it's good news, um, you know, I'm concerned we're in second lockdown now. I'm pretty confident we'll have a third lockdown, maybe towards the end of January, I would imagine. And then once that's started and the vaccination's being rolled out, what's the incentive for the government to stop, other than the continuing collapse of the economy, which it doesn't seem that concerned about in the first place? I'm a little bit less concerned about some of the logistical issues. I think this all this talk about the Pfizer vaccine and the cold chains is not as much of an insurmountable problem as it first appears. I mean, to, be, for, to begin with, uh, Pfizer have managed to develop a cold box, which means that it can just be kept in uh, dry ice for about five days at the kind of negative 70 degrees or whatever it is, and then it can be put in the fridge for five days. I think that's kind of logistically manageable. I might eat my words considering the competency of the NHS and the bureaucracy and 
uh, the UK. But yeah, uh, that's I, the real concern, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's can they can they distribute? Hopefully, they get in the military. To be honest, I think the military have shown themselves pretty adept at logistics. And Amazon, to be honest, Amazon have also done a, a pretty good job in terms of delivering things to the at the right time, the right places. If they can deliver me goods. Uh, the next day, I think the government should be using them uh, certainly before the the postal service to deliver um, the vaccine. I do think we should the, should prime members get a priority for the vaccine. As a I mean, as a prime member, I'd, I'd think so, but perhaps as a moral case for for going down the population. I think that, that we we don't quite know how this is going to play out. I think you're right, Chris, in terms of how quickly we can remove restrictions. Um, even someone who's probably relatively more sympathetic to some of these measures than you are. I do really get quite disappointed when people say that, oh, we're still going to have to wear masks for years or we're still going to have to do social distancing for a long time. I think that the moral case for that uh, certainly diminishes, if not disappears, once a substantial amount of the most vulnerable people and the people who also interact with the most vulnerable people are vaccinated, uh, in which case the it, it more or less... Although there is, you know, this risk of long COVID um, amongst it kind of going around amongst younger populations, I don't think it's a serious enough risk to justify taking particularly draconian steps for, for a, one day longer than is necessary. So if you can do the the most vulnerable 5, 10, 15 million people, um, I think the government needs to remove the restrictions as soon as possible. Yeah. And just on the, the kind of wider narrative around the development of these vaccines, you get these two kind of competing stories one that the development of them is a massive victory for capitalism uh, and the other that actually state involvement was pretty key in producing both of these candidates which do you think is the the more kind of accurate story Matthew well I mean I've written an article on the why this is a victory for capitalism so I suppose I should go go into that for that I mean the Pfizer vaccine in particular they rejected uh, Project Moonshoot which is the the kind of Trump administration's um, money for research and development, although it's kind of hard to argue in response to that as well when people say, well, the government's buying up, uh, the US government and other governments are buying up millions and millions of doses and they're, they're kind of subsidizing the manufacturing to get it out quicker. So, you know, credit where credit's due, I think there is probably justifiable wrong in the government trying to speed up development. But we, we have to acknowledge the overall narrative here is that we're kind of dependent on these pharmaceutical companies, these, these profit-seeking enterprises. Now, we've been told profit is an evil thing for a long time, but if Pfizer makes an insane amount of money out of selling me a vaccine and, and selling the public a vaccine that saves millions of lives. I think it's a pretty good case that we need to stop being obsessed with profit so much and that profit is about providing value to others. And the Pfizer vaccine is a fantastic example of that. Yeah, I think potentially the hottest libertarian take on this is actually a victory for state involvement because it, um, it involved the use of intellectual property laws. That's <laughs> <about>. <laughs> um, so so on to the, the kind of wider questions around these vaccines. And this is, is one for you, Chris, I think. Do, do they retrospectively justify some of the lockdowns that we've had? This seems to be the kind of the argument that has been made by people who have been pro-lockdown that, well, we're just going to have them um, and then we're going to have a vaccine. And that's the exit strategy. Um, are the next few months even more dire and restrictive as we end up waiting for these vaccines to be deployed en masse? Yeah, well, yeah, it gets worse every every time you lock down, in my opinion. Uh, and the fact that it's a miserable grey winter it doesn't help things very much. People's patience wears out. People's depression kicks in. Um, so if we're going to continue more or less in lockdown for the next six months or so, or even the next three months, it's going to be it's going to leave terrible psychological scars. Um, you know, all these things are a trade off. Does does it justify lockdowns? That we've had so far, well, not really. I mean, the only justification for lockdown that I can see, which is the one given us to the given to us by the government, and it's the only thing I ever really signed up to, was um, you want to protect the NHS, as they say, which is to me more meaningfully. You want to ensure everyone who gets hospitalised with COVID can be given the best possible care. Um, that I think was a justification for the initial lockdown. I don't think it justified the second lockdown, and it certainly didn't justify keeping the first lockdown in place for as long as it did. And I think that was looking back, or indeed even at the time, but certainly looking back, um, I think that was a terrible mistake. I mean, we should have come out of that lockdown uh, by the end of April, if not earlier, and then we would have had the whole of May and June to kind of get back to some form of new normality um, because it was summer, you know, and we, we can see if one thing we can learn from Sweden is that it goes away in the summer and we kept ourselves lock, locked down. We, we 
destroyed a huge amount of economic activity really for nothing and we created a huge amount of lockdown fatigue if we'd have locked down initially for about five weeks people might have been more uh, happy to go into lockdown again subsequently and again probably as i say i think almost certain there's a third lockdown coming next year because we're never going to get on top of test and trace so i think that was a big mistake um we should have had a more sort of controlled transmission of the virus uh in the hot summer months and not you know tested people's patients so much with a with an excessively long lockdown i don't think the vaccine comes into it at all i don't think the vaccine justifies it um nor would it have been less justifiable Without a vaccine, I don't think it's irrelevant. I think you you tackle disease with medical care, medicine, and vaccines. And soon we're going to have a vaccine to go along with the medical care. You don't tackle them with lockdowns. They're they're an insane and unbelievably extreme response to a health threat that was invented by the Chinese Communist Party and the rest of the world suddenly went into lockstep with it. I I think in terms of the optimism or pessimism the next few months, I was reassured by Boris's message to his colleagues about uh, self-isolating for 14 days. We can discuss that kind of absurdity for someone who's already had COVID isolating. But he did say in that message that at least the current measures will end on on December 2nd as planned. And I suspect the government doesn't really have the political ability to, to push through extending lockdown much further through the Conservative Party. That said, though, I, I think we probably are going to see a continuation of at least some version of the tier system for quite some time. Um, in terms of the original purpose of lockdown, I think you're definitely right, Chris, that it, it was only ever really justifiable in a complete sense in order to either if we did it kind of very early, very short and very fast with good test and trace to kind of get to zero COVID. But once that was not a possibility, I'm doing it to ensure the NHS wasn't overwhelmed. I think there's two elements there, though. You're right that it's in ensuring we have the best possible care for COVID patients, but also ensuring the healthcare system is available for other patients. And despite what the government claimed, the NHS was overwhelmed by the first uh, wave of COVID. Um, there were COVID patients left to die uh, in care homes as well as in, in households. Uh, we basically stopped all other care, not so-called non-urgent care, but often that is actually quite urgent care. The NHS effectively became did become the COVID service as an intentional strategy. Now, you can argue whether or not that was necessary, but to some extent it was in order to, to deal with the number of COVID patients coming in and perhaps they overcorrected to some extent. Now, I think they're in a bit of a difficult situation because they're trying to run the 90% of the NHS. So hospitals have been threatened with fines uh, by the government if they don't continue running the rest of their service at kind of 90% level. And then they're trying to also deal with this upsurge in COVID cases, as well as the kind of usual winter upsurge, which might be a little bit less this year because the flu hasn't been going around as much, but still tends to put more pressure onto the system. And in that sense, that is kind of the only justification in my head for what we're currently in, which is the second lockdown, whether or not they have to feel like they need to do that again. I'd be pretty disappointed if they did, if they can't think of smarter ways in terms of step-down care to take um, pressure off hospitals so that this place is either for COVID patients or non-COVID patients who are recovering to leave hospitals and go to other facilities. Um, I have a little bit more hope in the ability, not necessarily of tracing, but in terms of mass testing. Uh, I think there there is a lot of potential from some of this, uh, the UK government's project can be shot, which is the the plans to do all these lateral flow tests as well as these antibody tests to let people get on with their lives a bit more to normal and kind of know what level of risk they're at rather than our current system where we've kind of locked down everyone because we can't really determine what everyone's risk profile is. Uh, I think there's a bit of opportunity there. Yeah, I mean, that is one area of optimism. If they can get a decent, effective, rapid test rolled out in the next few weeks, that would be fantastic. You know, And you can get the results in five or ten minutes, and you can test people at venues and stuff like that. That would really be a big step forward in helping life get back to some kind of normality. But I don't know how realistic or how far off it is. So you mentioned, Chris, the kind of the alternate strategy or one of the alternate strategies to lockdowns, the, the idea of kind of protecting the, the vulnerable um, and letting everyone else kind of continue with their their lives pretty much as normal and, and doing that, um, at least at this stage, on, on a kind of voluntary basis. Um, some would argue, uh, and some have argued, that Sweden, as the kind of classic example of the alternate strategy, has got rising case numbers and that kind of is beginning to undermine the case against lockdowns. What would you say to that? Um, well, only if you think that, or if, if you thought that Sweden was at herd immunity uh, by the end of summer. I never thought that. My The reason I kind of supported the Swedish approach was that it showed that you didn't need to have a lockdown 
in order to protect the health service. The health service never came close to collapsing in Sweden. Maybe it would have been different in Britain. I accept there are differences, but it, it didn't happen in Sweden. Um, and so the, the fact that they've got rising case numbers now, um, perhaps they're rising more than some kind of lockdown skeptics expected because there's less herd immunity than they thought. We don't know what the level of herd immunity is there. We don't know what it is anywhere. We do know it's a lot higher than... Seven, I think people still say only 7% of people have had it in, in Britain. They haven't. Loads of, We don't know how many people had it because we never do the, the T-cell test. But a lot more than 7% of people have had it. We know that the antibodies fade after a while. And it's 7% of people who've got the antibodies. So um, the Swedish experience, I think, is perfectly defensible because they have continued relatively free and normal life this year, even if they had to go into lockdown next next few months, which I'm not sure they will. I don't think they probably will, but I don't know. Um, it was still worth doing because they'll be in their first lockdown while we're in our third one. But again, it all comes down to trade-offs. You know, do you do you factor in people's freedom and sanity, or do you only care about people dying from one particular disease? Is it a disaster that Sweden have had 6,000 deaths from COVID, whereas Finland have had, I don't know, however many hundred they've had? It entirely depends on, on what you know what you value and, and what weight you put on different things in life. I think, yeah, Sweden does remain, uh, uh, in some ways for both sides of the argument, a challenging example. Because if you're a lockdown fanatic, you can't really explain why they've had uh, relatively few deaths. And if I think you're an ultimately lockdown skeptic or if you're, you're claiming to be, you know, the kind of herd immunity claims um it's not a strong evidence base for that either since i although i think you're right chris obviously antibody tests do not give you the full remit of the population who've been exposed uh to covid um and if we had widespread t-cell testing in the population we could tell it is um much harder to do t-cell tests i think it's actually more of a practical issue in that there's very expensive as well yeah it's expensive i think there's some research so some News articles I've seen on on some more accessible T cell tests. I think we're going to get better um, data on that coming out soon. I, I don't think it's going to be a huge number of people who have um, T cells that are strongly reactive to COVID and and will be protecting from COVID. This this is a kind of complex immunological debate going on at the moment in the literature about and there's a really a lot of uncertainty about the, the extent to which we we do know T cells are going to provide some kind of protection and there does seem to be some initial evidence that people who do have COVID prime T cells um, don't tend to get symptomatic cases of COVID. Um, but at the same time, we don't, as you said, we don't know how many people have COVID prime T cells. And it's also unlikely, at least from the current evidence, that if you have um, T cells from common cold coronaviruses, that you're going to have protection um, from getting COVID or even potentially any protection from having a severe case of COVID. So there's a bit of uncertainty about the the, the, the T cell situation. Um, in, in terms of the, the kind of politics of it, it's it does seem like, the you can exaggerate the differences in policy with Sweden. So you're right that they haven't been forced to be locked down, but there's to some extent there's a kind of de facto, you know, public mandates encouraging people to lock down at the moment to stop going out in in major cities in Sweden. There um, is now, yeah, but there, well, there hasn't been until very recently. Yeah, you're right, there hasn't been until very recently. And is there a question of could the UK and and this might have been an ideal approach? Could the UK have you know, done a Sweden, not in the sense of going for herd immunity, but in the sense of just having voluntary measures rather than compulsion. And I, I don't know the answer. I don't know whether uh, institutionally and, and socially that would have worked or if Sweden is, as people would say, you know, a unique case. Um, I don't know whether or not the, the spread was much bigger in the UK at the point at which we locked down. It was much less when they started taking voluntary measures in Sweden. And therefore, you're, the UK needed to go much harder in March because it already spread so much in the community. I think there's a lot of, you know, kind of what ifs there that are going to be difficult to answer. I, I do take the point more broadly, though, that we do need to be very careful about thinking lockdowns are the strategy in response to infectious diseases. I do not want to see lockdowns every time there is a 2009 swine flu that ends up being modelled to kill millions of people and, and Billy does anything at all. I think we've got to be very, very hesitant with using population-wide measures like we have. Just on the kind of idea of a voluntary uh, system of lockdown, I remember reading on, on Twitter, I think it was maybe today or, or yesterday, a thread talking about the non-compliance during the Blitz in relation to, to people having uh, having their lights on and lighting candles and things like that. Now, uh, several decades have passed uh, since that, but I wonder whether the, the, we get the same sort of non-compliance and it need to be enforced by uh, blitz officers, I forget their names, in order to, to actually have an effect. 
Well, that's kind of yeah. That's ultimately what the kind of the people who have hated the Swedish approach from day one have switched to. I mean, the, the argument has changed from these people from being their initial claim was. Sweden is going to just have to dig mass graves. It's going to be an absolute catastrophe. They're all going to die. It's gone now to, oh, well, it, yeah, it didn't happen in Sweden, but it wouldn't work in Britain because people in Britain are scum. That's the unspoken and, and often basically spoken <laughs> argument about it is that we needed to have heavy laws because Swedish people are jolly nice and uh, obedient and kind of uh, civic minded and people in Britain are scum and they'll just go out having house parties and, and going raving all the time. So it's horses for courses. I'm not sure whether this bolsters your, your case or, or undermines it or both, Chris. But I mean, if you look at the kind of the public support for, for mandatory lockdowns seemingly being, being fairly high in, in polling numbers, that suggests to me that actually British people in general are, are, are fairly happy to at least abide by these measures or, or declare their support for them. I'm aware, of course, that they're, they're two very different things. But at least there's some level of support for them. Well, I hope, yeah, people by and large have abided by that, which is why I don't really accept the, the argument that we're inherently different to the Swedes and we wouldn't have gone along with sensible kind of long-term guidelines. And that's the key word, long-term. They always made it clear in Sweden that the idea was to have rules that people or guidelines that people can follow for a long term, because it, for the long term, because it's, it's going to go on and on. And, well, we shall see, you know, we're still, you know, it's early days this winter. We shall see how compliance is when we get to the third lockdown. It all does depend on, as you're, as you're kind of hinting at here, the, the compliance of the public and that people in the UK, unlike in, let's say, China, where they were in some cases literally soldered into their, their homes, uh, complying with kind of moderate measures. I, I don't, yeah, I'm kind of a little bit sceptical as well about some of the institutional claims that Sweden's love freedom more or Brits love freedom less or Australians love freedom more or less. It feels like everyone's willing to go along with something if they think it is in the, the, the public health interest broadly set. It's just very difficult to determine where the barriers of that are. Yeah, especially when they're terrified of it. And you have to remember the British public exaggerate the number of people who died from COVID by a factor of, well, either 10 or 100 times the number that actually died, depending on uh, what, what you believe. But there's been a, uh, people are not really on top of the relative risks of COVID-19. They think it is a lot more deadly to them personally and to others than it actually is. Well, I think it's time to move on to our next section, talking about the recent palace intrigue in Westminster. While the nation settles into the latest season of The Crown, a palace bloodbath has taken place in the court of number 10. Key advisor Dominic Cummings and close ally Lee Kane have left Downing Street for the last time, with various reports suggesting they were bounced out by those who want the government to take a less confrontational approach. This has really raised questions within the particular political class, but also more broadly about where the government's heading. I suppose the kind of first question, though, is should we care about uh, intrigue in number 10? Is this is this just an inside-the-beltway story, Chris? I think on this occasion it is pretty important for the future of the country. Um, I think Dominic Cummings going is much more important than the average uh, you know, move in Whitehall. Uh, and I think it's probably a bad thing. I don't know Dominic Cummings. I've never even heard of Lee Kane, I don't think, until last week. Um, but Dominic Cummings, he doesn't like the political establishment. He doesn't particularly like the civil service, and nor do I. And he seemed like he was going to get on and do something about it. Now, whether he actually has done anything about it is another question. And I guess you could argue that coronavirus has got in the way of um, very much happening in government at all. Um, but... One thing I like about him is that he does kind of get the fact that some people are always going to hate you, and that's fine. And that's the way Margaret Thatcher felt, and you know many other people actually get things done, and he didn't try and pander to people. And I think Boris Johnson has a tendency to want to be loved, want everyone to like him, um, and in practice that means the people around him, including his fiance. Uh, the metropolitan elite, for want of a better word, phrase. And uh, so, yeah, I fear now that we're going to be going back to David Cameron-style government. Uh, it's it's fancy you should make a comparison to Thatcher there because I've basically written up a, a pretty similar thesis to that for The Telegraph online today, which is 
kind of comparing some of the the treatment in the crown of Thatcher. And we, for our listeners who haven't uh, watched yet, I, I do advise pausing right now and, and watching the second episode of the the fourth season of the Crown before continuing. Uh, it shows these amazing scenes where uh, the Thatcher it goes to Balmoral. She isn't really getting along with the royal family whatsoever. She's just not really fitting in there. And then she's got these amazing lines where she's talking to Dennis and she's saying to Dennis just how similar these people are, these brutish and these snobbish people to her, members of her first cabinet who are less sympathetic to the, the Thatcher mission. And ultimately we see Thatcher leaving early, allegedly, uh, bad moral to go back to London to kind of clean up the mess that's going on within the country and within her party and not really fitting into that establishment as that elite and giving up on being liked. And then later on in the episode, it's an audience between Thatcher and the Queen and the, the Queen says it's not a good idea to make enemies and, and Thatcher says, no, I like making enemies. It kind of shows you've stood up for something uh, in your life. And, and it seems very much that this government's at a, a similar point, that if, if Boris wants to achieve something, um, he kind of needed a, a Dominic Cummings in some way. Now, I'm not a huge fan of Dominic Cummings in a lot of, way, in a lot of ways. He's often betrayed as some you know, libertarian extremist. I don't think that's true at all. We should remember that his number one kind of campaign success was, was running Vote Leave, which was, let's be honest here, often quite explicitly sceptical about immigration, not particularly libertarian position, as well as pro giving more money to the NHS, in not another libertarian position at all. And since then, he's been a big advocate for, for APRA, for kind of putting a lot of government spending into research and innovation, which most libertarians are rightfully, I think, sceptical about um, state spending on because it doesn't really end up achieving very much. That said, though, he does seem like someone who was willing to go against uh, a lot of kind of hierarchy, existing hierarchies when it comes to the civil service, um, something like planning reform being a, another good example where he's pushing against the status quo and kind of an understood an, an underlying need for systematic change. And that if Boris can't keep up that energy, he's, he's really going to struggle to hold on to the political coalition that he's built in terms of winning the North of England. It's not completely impossible, but it doesn't feel like climate change, as much as that might be an important issue, is going to serve us particularly well. Yeah, I think I share Chris's kind of reluctant saying that this is an important moment for the Conservative Party and and for the country as a whole. I tend to be very sceptical of any sort of inside the Beltway story about advisors moving or or chiefs of staff moving, etc. And I, I struggle to care about it. I really struggle to care about it, actually. But in this case, for, for the reasons that we've already mentioned, I think you know Cummings leaving does signal a, a kind of new direction in the Tories. And in some cases, it's for better. And in some, it's for worse. And this kind of move, uh, this, this relaunch of Boris's premiership to a speech on the environment, for example, the way that they're probably going to go about doing environmental policy is not a particularly good thing or particularly the the right priority. It is possible, of course, and and let's keep our fingers crossed that we can have some sort of free market environmentalism. I mean, we've heard talk recently about uh, road pricing from the Chancellor. Uh, We could have things related to carbon taxes or embracing nuclear energy more, for example. But I think realistically speaking, it's not going to be that. We're going to get a, a kind of further dilution of any sort of free market principles and the Conservative Party as they, they move towards reaching out to perhaps the more Cameronite voter base. Reaching out to people who are never going to vote for them. That's what it is, effectively. Well, this is why I'm kind of confused by it in some ways. I mean, I guess maybe they think that Cummings has, has got the job done. Um, I think that they'd be wrong to think that in, in retaining the Red Wall voters. Um, maybe, maybe that's their thinking behind it. It does seem like a very strange strategic move, though. And of course, like... Like you said, and like, and like Matthew has said, Cummings was uh, wrongly, I think, portrayed as this kind of lodestar of how free marketeers have, have taken over the government at the moment with all of the, the free market policies being passed, like banning adverts for jam, which we'll get onto in the next section. Uh, but at least in kind of in terms of sentiment, it seems like they're trying to distance themselves from that uh, and move towards a, a more moderate position. Cameron could form, uh, ultimately in, in 2015, a uh, majority government based upon that mix of kind of old Tory voters and, and some of the new new establishment kind of types. It doesn't seem like, though, in a post-Brexit world in which we are more polarised between, I guess it's kind of the David Goodhart worldview, the, the somewheres, anywheres divide, that, that Cameron can, can pull together enough uh, somewheres and anywheres again in 
sorry, that Boris can pull together the same coalition that David Cameron pulled together, and that Boris's coalition is fundamentally different. There is a huge risk, I think, of the government undermining itself quite substantially here and, and people who decided to give Boris a go to get Brexit done kind of moving back. Um, as you just see a piece by Rachel Wolf, who's uh, at the consultancy firm um, Public First, but also she co-wrote with Rob Colville from the CPS, the government's um, manifesto, the last election, Conservative Party manifesto. And she makes the point that the government does need to viciously focus on the red wall. Now, I disagree with a lot of her prescriptions about the red wall. I think a lot of the idea that you can just kind of throw a bit of money around at the north and that'll make them happy uh, and just build some infrastructure and a HS2 and, and whatever else it may be. It doesn't. It also doesn't seem like a particularly good plan. And that was the. We should mind you that was effectively the the kind of Cummings era plan was just to spend big on the NHS, spend big on public services without necessarily thinking too much about what the outcomes are or any kind of meaningful reform. Um, it was kind of very much a labour light agenda when it came to when it came to issues like that. So it seems like the, the, if they're going to be successful, they they need to think a little bit differently to to where the current movement is leading them, which is potentially, Boris has also said in response to the the murmurs that he'll be too city-centric to focus on the Red Wall, but what's that going to mean and what should that mean, Chris? Well, I think part of it actually is what Carrie Simmons would probably call the culture war. I think people actually like Boris still, uh, including in the north of England. Um, They didn't just vote for him because of Brexit. Uh, or even because Corbyn was such a bad leader. There's something that people like about him being straight-talking. And if they're going to drop the so-called cultural stuff, they're going to go backwards. And the environmentalism isn't the way forward for them. I don't accept for a minute that Cameron won an election because he was seen as being uh, you know, pro-environment. I mean, Cameron actually, I think, is hugely overrated. He should have slaughtered Gordon Brown in 2010. He should have won with a sizable majority in 2010, and he didn't. And he only won the 2015 election because he promised a referendum on Brexit. That's it. There's, there's no great model to, to follow there. The model that should be followed is Boris Johnson, December 2019, when he got a really big majority by being himself and not pandering, not, not only not pandering to the metropolitan elite, but actually you know, sticking two fingers up on them. Keep on doing that. But it looks like all is lost. Um, I mean, just full of despair for everything, really. It was bad enough when we were just borrowing endless amounts of money and uh, closing down thousands and thousands of businesses. Now we're going to do that, and we're also going to be squandering a huge amount of money on wind turbines, and God knows what else. What I don't know what the women and girls agenda is that I've heard about, or the oh, all the rest of this kind of stuff. It's 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 politically very stupid, and it's also very bad for the country. Just to push back a little bit though on the point about Boris, kind of the coalition he formed in twenty nineteen. Obviously, that's a very successful electoral coalition, but surely a lot of the policies he was promising are not ones that we should particularly welcome in terms of the obsession with spending on the NHS or the obsession with uh, thinking that you can rebuild northern towns by, I don't know, building HS2 or, or by spending a bit of money on skills training or something, rather than thinking about what would necessarily create prosperity, which are more traditional free market policies that have been proven effective over the years. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, the big spending stuff was, was, was very worrying as well. But the reality is I just don't see how in a parliamentary democracy you can stop this arms race of spending and borrowing now that it's now now that it's considered um perfectly acceptable to print or borrow endless sums of money and everybody on left and right now seems to be an mmt then how do you win an election without saying you're going to outspend the other party it's, it just seems to be impossible so my only hope was that boris would say a lot of this stuff yes unfortunately he would borrow more money than the country could really afford but that he'd also bring in some decent economic policies that would rejuvenate these places and create employment but thanks to the lockdowns we're now going to see i suspect record unemployment along with all the rest of the you know economic fallout of this and enormous amounts of borrowing so it's really the worst of every world yeah, I can't really see a, a stonking Tory majority resulting from uh, a huge influx of Tory Lib Dem swing voters, uh, that, that huge constituency that definitely still exists in, in this country. What, one of the kind of casualties that I worry that Cummings' exit will bring um, is, is planning reform, actually. I think that his exit and this move towards a more, I guess, metropolitan 
agenda uh, is is deeply concerning for the government's plans on on planning reform. Cummings was one of the key champions of that, uh, and also a lot of the the kind of new red wall Tory MPs were were the ones that were perhaps far more supportive of it than the traditional base in the shires and the, again the more kind of metropolitan liberal voter base that, that the Tories could get. Uh, so I, I'm really concerned that. If we move away from that, especially with a focus on environmentalism, we're probably going to get more myths about the green belt being a, a green and pleasant land instead of one third intensive agricultural land coming up again. So, yeah, planning reform, I'm I'm worried about that now. So I think one last thing to think about on this topic is the fact that there is an opening for a, a chief of staff or a senior advisor at number 10. Are the rumours true, Chris? Are you about to be get the call? I, I can say nothing. I've been, been sworn, sworn to secrecy. Well, now you uh, now you haven't got your your public health England position ready. You're going to have to look for this one instead. Yeah, if they didn't like Cummings, they're not going to like me. Well, let's let's just say we move on talking of public health England to think about the government's plans for a so-called junk food ad ban online. So the government's latest bright idea in the war against our waste lines is to ban all online advertising of so-called junk food, which is defined as foods that are high in fat, salt and sugar, HFSS foods for short. Public health campaigners are pretty unsurprisingly delighted. Uh, the ad industry, not so much. They say they've been completely blindsided by this. Uh, and avocado growers are presumably up in arms as avocados count technically as junk food. There's a public consultation on the policy going on for the next six weeks. Um, so, Chris, I guess first to you, what's the scope of this ban? What does this actually mean if you're browsing the internet? You're not going to see pictures of jammy dodgers and YouTube ads anymore, or is it worse than that? No, you will be able to see adverts for avocados. Dan, you'll be pleased to hear. It's good, oh, news, good news for millennials. You, you beat me to it, Daniel. I think I'm the uh, avocado munching metropolitan. <laughs> So you're okay with them because they're not part of the government's reformulation scheme. Um, so the government has given a uh, sort of a, a carve out for anything that's not in the reformulation scheme. So things like olive oil and raisins and avocados and roast lamb will not be included, although they would have been before because they are technically high in fat, sugar, or salt. Um, but that still leaves an enormous quantity. It still leaves most most of the food products they're looking at. Um, in with the ban. The ban itself kind of went under the radar for a long time. It was always part of the government's intention, going back to, the again, David Cameron started all this. Um, it was always part of the intention to include some kind of online ad ban along with the TV ad ban, but because people are so kind of obsessed with TV advertising, even though it's a, a smaller and smaller part of the advertising landscape, um, people didn't think much about the online ban. And then when these proposals were put forward, it wasn't even a 9pm watershed online ban, it was 24 hours a day. So any company who sell, who wants to sell their wedding cakes, their sausage rolls, their jam, their marmalade, their honey, their pies, what, you know, sausages, whatever it may be, huge range of perfectly normal healthy food, um, will never be allowed to be advertised on any online medium at all, including the company's own website, including emails to customers, including text messages. All these things in the proposals will be banned. And actually, I've noticed people really getting uh, quite annoyed by this, which is pleasing to see from my perspective. People really can see that this is um, very, very censorious and very, very anti-business. I guess because unlike TV advertising, um, it's going to affect businesses large and small, whereas TV advertising is just really big companies. We're talking here about your local cafe, your local pub, not being able to advertise the desserts. It sounds crazy, it is crazy. The government consultation is only about how it should be enforced, so I wouldn't get too excited about um, the prospect of it being dropped. Yeah, so just on, on kind of how this would work in practice, you mentioned obviously companies can't even advertise on their own websites. If I imagine, say, a, a pizza delivery website or something like that um are they going to be allowed to even talk about their offers on there you know it's yeah, a very good question i mean they are allowed to make what the government calls factual claims so presumably you're allowed to put a photo up of the product you're allowed to in fact the government specifies the things you're allowed to say the price the nutritional uh description the ingredients a few things like that i take it from the consultation that you won't be able to say this is delicious or this is a bargain or anything like that 
I consider that a factual statement, though, Chris. Am I still not allowed to say it? It's actually very similar. I mean, I don't know, Dan, if you buy your e-cigarette equipment online, but it's very similar to the e-cigarettes advertising ban, the EU's e-cigarette advertising ban, where you can sell the things online and uh, you, you, you can show the products, but you're very, very heavily restricted on what you can say about them. It has to be almost like a kind of trade press thing. Uh, mm. you, you can't market them in any conventional way. I imagine one way of getting around it, I don't know if they've considered this loophole, is you could say 92% of the public agree that this pizza is delicious, <laughs> which is an actual claim, right? You're not, you're not making that claim yourself. Well, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I mean, th- these are all very good points to raise, you know, and there's many more that could be raised. You're, don't you're, give them you're, ideas of things to ban, Dan. <laughs> but it, it's creating a legal minefield, isn't it? Because what you've got is you've got a simplistic idea from public health muppets saying, oh, we'll just ban the advertising of junk food and kids won't eat it anymore. Then it goes through onto a white paper, suddenly civil servants having to look at this. Okay, what does this mean? What is junk food? Firstly, there isn't a legal definition of it, so they've had to scramble around and make ad hoc exemptions in order for it not to look too stupid. But then what is advertising? Is it advertising if it's just on your website? Who knows? I mean, the the public health people have redefined packaging as advertising when they brought in the plain packaging for tobacco. So you've you've created this massive legal minefield here um, where nothing really makes very much sense. And the consequences of doing it are patently absurd to 99% of the population. I had a guy, I was on the radio with a guy who's been campaigning for this for years, and these points were raised to him, and he just didn't have an answer to any of it. He just kept repeating, well, you know, a third of children are leaving school, obese, and all the, these lies that they use all this time to push this stuff through. You know, he, he didn't have a solution. All these people have got is just kind of a repetition of the problem again and again and again, and therefore something must be done. This is something, therefore it must be done. So let's accept that the, the frankly mental details of this ban mean that it's it's not going to work out in practice as intended. The broader kind of push behind this, do you think it's necessary to, to do something like this to reduce obesity, which as our, our former chief medical officer, Damon Sally Davis, has argued very recently is contributing to our high COVID-19 death numbers? Yeah, well, of course, COVID was the, the thing that made this happen. All this stuff had been put on the back burner. Because Boris was apparently you know, too libertarian, as we all know, great libertarian that he is, too libertarian to do it. And then he had this near death experience and totally changed his mind and blamed his own obesity on the fact that he was taken into ICU. Um, so that's been used as an excuse. Sally Davis was banging on about this the other day. From what she was saying, you'd think that if there was nobody obese in Britain, hardly anyone would have died from COVID 19. In actual fact, uh, BBC more or less. Um, looked at the figures they worked out that maybe one possibly up to two percent of all covid deaths could have been prevented if there was low levels of obesity we're talking really a rounding error when you when you're dealing with the number of people who died from covid19 but it's become the scapegoat and it's become the scapegoat because well firstly people like sally davis don't really want to answer any awkward questions about why they were planning for the wrong type of pandemic for years and years and secondly, because this is what they've been banging on about for a very long time, and they can't change a record. Everything's got to be the fault of binge drinking, smoking, and obesity. You know, that's all they've ever talked about. And they've almost miraculously, in my mind, managed to do it. They've managed to blame the public again for this. They've managed to blame people for being too fat and, and then indirectly blame food companies for advertising food. So yeah, to answer your question, of course it's not going to make any difference. If you read the studies where they've come up with these crazy estimates of uh, how how m- many calories are going to be reduced in the children's diet as a result of this, which is something like two a day, you know, just absolutely nothing from all this stuff combined. It's like five or six calories a day. Um, and even that's based on nonsense, where you just get a bunch of kids in a room, put them in front of a television, show them some TV ads, give them masses of crisps and nuts, no parental supervision, give them all this free food, and it turns out they eat more of it. You know, it's it's pathetic nonsense. It's not going to work. It's not going to have an effect on childhood obesity, which we don't measure properly anyway, so we'll never really know. Um, but it will go on. And the, the the next campaign will be for oh we're still seeing you know McDonald's adverts on billboards we're still seeing adverts on the side of buses got to ban that next got to ban radio advertising it never ends anybody who's familiar with the history of anti smoking knows where this leads well Chris I think that was an exceptionally good rant and 
it just what seems most striking to me is the fact that we've really seen this extraordinary mission creep. And I think you've been warning about this for a long, long time. And and often slippery slope arguments, I think, are rightfully rejected. But in, in the public health sphere, sphere um, slippery slope is not an argument. It's a strategy of the public health lobby. So the way in which we've gone from, well, we need to ban advertising for children to now the government suddenly has a role in regulating what adults are allowed to see and, and fundamentally, I think this is also a free speech issue. People are not going to see much of the free speech lobby, you know, particularly see this as a free speech question necessarily, but it is a free speech issue. It's a question of what content and what ideas people are allowed to see. And commercial speech is speech as well, even if it is advertising speech. And when you start limiting that, you're limiting people's basic rights and liberties. And you might say, you might make an argument to say if it was effective that there'd be a justification in limiting advertising to children. Now, we know it's quite ridiculous to say that because you reduce advertising, you're going to have very much impact at all on the decisions that the parents and children make about what they eat. And we know that whenever they do this, they, they'll point at something like the sugar tax. and They'll say, oh, you know, it reduced the amount of sugary soft drinks people ate. And then you can come back and say, well, did it actually reduce obesity? Did it actually have any impact on obesity? Right. And every time the answer is quite consistently... Or even on sugar uh, consumption. Even even on sugar consumption. Well, exactly. Matter. So you can tax one thing and people are just going to substitute other things and, yeah. and because people want to consume these products. You can't fundamentally stop that. You, people have to make individual choices if they want to lose weight. You, the government can't control that. I think the way COVID has come into this is quite fascinating because it probably is what justifies um, an, an adult... Based approach to it all. Um, I do remember this the absurdity back around June and July when when this was first coming out. Uh, we heard from Matt Hancock that um, if everyone could lose five pounds, uh, which would be miraculous, everyone would be could lose five pounds would be extremely impressive. It would save the NHS a hundred million pounds over yeah. the next five <laughs> years. Now that sounds like a lot of money at first until you say a hundred million pounds over five years. years. So that's twenty million pounds a year in the context of an NHS budget. That's something like hundred and thirty billion. So I was just doing a quick calculation earlier. That's uh, 100 million pounds over five years is 0.014% of the NHS's annual budget. Literally, you would not get past midday on January 1 of NHS expenditure yeah. if everyone lost five pounds, which is also an absurd thing that's not going to happen. So the idea that we need to make people healthy for the sake of our National Health Service. Now, putting aside how morally reprehensible the idea is that we exist to serve our precious NHS rather than it existing to provide us health care and the, the society needs to change to put less pressure on the NHS. It's not even going to have a big deal on the cost of the NHS, even by their own admissions. So the justification for it seems just totally absurd to me. Yeah, I thought he undermined his own argument with that because anybody could do the sums that you did and work out this guy's is 0.00 whatever percent of the budget. Who cares? And that's if people do something that then they cannot do or they're never going to do anyway. So yeah, it showed that yeah, if, if everybody losing that much weight has basically no effect, then what are we talking about this for? What are we talking about this? Why are we always talking about junk food advertising in the middle of a pandemic? Why, right. are, we, why are we even falling for it? Well, why have we not learned a lesson that public health should be focused on infectious diseases and trying to do everything they can to ensure that there's um, structures in place to prevent them from spreading in populations and actually killing tens of thousands of people? Just the That's absurdity it. of it is just right. mind-boggling. The bare-faced cheek of... Dame Sally Davis to say, well, we should have focused on obesity more when just last week she's trying to pass the buck on her own failures relating to pandemic preparedness. This was a, a story in, I think, the mail where she was talking about how she asked Public Health England whether we needed to be prepared for a coronavirus pandemic. And they said no. And that was good enough for her. Um, so she's saying, you know, it's all Public Health England's fault, nothing to do with me. I just can't believe that the kind of public health lot who's failures and, and misplaced priorities have been exposed so clearly by this pandemic are trying and successfully making the discourse about its obesity that's the real problem here and to kind of add my rant to uh, to the previous two because i feel like, feel like i need to get some stuff off my head. these podcasts are actually anger management uh sessions <laughs> for all of us we, we, we we're not really trying to speak to anyone it's just an opportunity to to yell about yeah. frustrations <laughs> Look, the idea that advertising is somehow creating this new demand amongst adults and, and amongst older children is, is ridiculous. It's just not true. And it's based on, I argue this based on quite good evidence. If you look at the relationship between the amount of advertising spend in a particular industry and the size of that industry, there is no relationship or basically uh, a very, very little relationship between the two. The function of advertising in a free society is 
to help people choose between different brands. And brands are useful for various things. They can connote quality, for example. A valuable brand provides good incentives for companies to keep their quality up. Uh, and these sort of things, that, they're fairly obvious points. They're not particularly arcane or, or complicated, but they seem to be completely missed by almost everyone involved in these debates. You know, I'll raise this point that, well, advertising doesn't create new demand for uh, products. It just makes people switch brands. And it's tre- treated as though it's a completely novel and interesting thing. Oh, really? I'd never heard about that before. When it, when or, I- or an industry argument. Oh, that's just that's the industry. You know, the industry say that. Uh, of course, it's an industry <laughs> argument. And we, and we have to add uh, Tim Harford and more or less to the list of, um, of conspiratorial free market uh, think tanks and, and whatnot for them saying that obesity wasn't a big issue in relation to yeah. COVID. Well, uh, but the thing is, you would think of all people, politicians would get this. Like Every four or five years, they go out on the stump and they try and persuade people to stop voting for that party and vote for this party. They might try and get out the vote, but it very rarely works. No amount of advertising gets a whole load of new people to start voting. They are getting people to switch. All their advertising at election time is aimed at getting people to switch, and yet they don't accept that when it comes to products in the market. No, no, they don't, and it's it's very annoying. It's it's very very frustrating. I don't think they ever will accept it either, because we've we've got to the stage now where the public health campaigners, especially with I mean with Cummings quitting and uh, and Carrie and the cabal taking more of a active role in the party, they're just going to go for this more and more. Boris has you know, realised that he was a bit overweight and he wants to impose his own preferences on the nation. And let's remember the one exemption there is from advertising law, the one type of advertising that doesn't have to be truthful, decent and honest by law, political advertising. They (laughs) they brought a carve out for themselves. Politicians can say whatever they want (laughs) in their advertising. Well, I think that uh, point of hypocrisy is a good place to end the podcast on. Thank you very much, Chris Snowden from the Institute of Economic Affairs and my co-host, Matthew Lesh. You've been listening to the Adam Smith Institute's Pin Factory podcast. And if you like uh, anger management strategies and (laughs) rants, then please do subscribe to us on your chosen podcast provider. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.